you describe the relationship status between Canadians and American politics? Would you say in a relationship or maybe married or perhaps it's complicated? My name is Kate Graham and this is Canada 2020's No Second Chances, a podcast about women in top political roles. This season examines what's worked in countries around the world to increase gender representation. So far, we've been from Canada to Denmark to Taiwan to Chile to New Zealand, and each country has its own story to tell. And today, we're examining a story and a country that's closer to home. Today, we're in the United States of America. American Politics It's on our TV channels and our favorite shows and in our movies. It's everywhere in our social media feeds. And you can walk into most any coffee shop in Canada and hear a conversation about Biden or Trump or whatever the U.S. political headlines are of the day. Yes, we Canadians love to talk about American politics. And I don't think it's just because they're our next-door neighbor, or because almost 70% of us live within 100 kilometers of the Canada-U.S. border. I think it's because American politics matters. It is internationally consequential. It affects us, and it influences our ideas and our attitudes and our political culture in more ways than we might like to admit. You hear Canadians express worry about American-style politics, usually a shorthand for hyper-partisan, divisive, big-money, larger-than-life political theatrics, a concern that feels especially timely right now. And my, oh my, we could do a whole podcast series on just that topic. But our interest here is in the representation of women, especially at the top. And there are a lot of reasons why America is an important comparator case for us. Our political institutions have somewhat of a shared history, dating back to the European colonization of North America, although taking markedly divergent paths. We are both countries built on fundamentally oppressive and patriarchal systems, including political institutions that historically excluded women. Progress is being made, but how? I think many Canadians, like me, feel like we know the characters in the story well, the women who have led the way and make the headlines, but we may know less about the systems that either help or hold women back. So today, we're joined by an impressive roster of American politics scholars to help us dig beneath the surface of the American story. Women remain underrepresented at all levels of American politics. So from the top, um, you know, obviously we still haven't had a woman president. So while we're celebrating the first woman vice president, we still have that highest, hardest glass ceiling in American politics, which is the top executive. Meet Dr. Kelly Dittmer. She's a political scientist, a professor, and the director of research at the Center of American Women and Politics. 
And then as you go down in levels of office, women are about or less um, than a third, and in most cases, uh, less than a third of office holders. So in the U.S. Congress, as of today, there are 26.7% of members in our statewide executive offices, which includes governors of U.S. states. Um, we're right at, at about 30% representation. And in our state legislative offices, um, women are about 30.8% of office holders. Um, and of course, they're over 50% of the population. Now, these numbers, all of those numbers increased in the last election cycle. So the 2020 election led to increases in women's representation across levels. And um, they were notable increases, you know, we're at record levels of representation, um, but uh, this is still relatively slow progress. So here's the 167 million person question. Why? Yeah, I think, you know, we often identified uh, many barriers or challenges, hurdles, however you want to characterize them, placed in, in women's way in both just becoming candidates and then, of course, being successful. So the candidate emergence process, the candidate selection process, and that's not unique to the United States, right? That's, that's a trend around the world. In the United States, um, women are still underrepresented simply in the candidate pool. So the number of women who throw their hats in the ring, if you will, um, is still disproportionate. In other words, lower than men and particularly, you know, lower than the percentage of women in the rep uh, population. What we saw as positive change over the last couple cycles is that particularly in the Democratic Party, that pool is approaching parity. In other words, if you look at the number of women who filed for, or the number of women and men who filed for office, it's getting close to 50-50 as Democrats. For Republicans, it is still much lower. So 20 in the 20% a range somewhere around there, depending on which level of office of candidates, Republican candidates are women. Now there's further complications here because there are more uh, women in the Democratic Party. So actually we should probably be shooting for over 50% um, of the candidate pool. Um, and, and likewise for Republicans, we would expect perhaps a smaller percentage, but they're still not matching their representation. Um, so I think one of the, the points of progress is we're certainly, certainly seeing more women in the pool, more women willing to run. Some of that is based on, you know, positive messages. Some of it is a sense of urgency that women are seeing that they need a seat at the table, not just outside of our governmental institutions. And then part of it is the, the building of a stronger and more supportive and inclusive infrastructure uh, to support women running for office, whether it be financially, which is significant highly significant in our system, um, whether it be in terms of gatekeepers, who are the party leaders and, and those doing the recruiting, and are they more attentive to gender and racial diversity, um, and or other programs, you know, that for, for women in the United States, there have been the growth of uh, training programs, recruitment programs that are apart from parties to try to further motivate and support women who want to run. And I think it's a it's a collection of those factors um, in addition to the fact that women continue to win um, that help to fuel both increased candidacy and then ultimately their continued success once they're on the ballot.
I asked Dr. Dittmer to help me unpack the partisan disparity here. I don't think there's a simple answer to why um, there is such a great partisan disparity in women's candidacies and women's representations. But I do think there are certainly a couple of things that, that point to it. One, uh, women in the population are more likely to identify as Democrats. So this is the gender gap and partisanship that we see among voters. Um, that still doesn't really get you much in terms of why there's an underrepresentation in candidates and office holders, because we're talking about a subset that you would need, right, to run for office. Um, so just because there's a smaller proportion in the population, I don't think it's a great explanation, but certainly it contributes to it, right? You have a smaller pool. Um, secondarily, I think that it is a much more significant issue that the Republican Party both is culturally more aligned with masculinity and more traditional beliefs around gender roles, more traditional gender beliefs, which creates a conflict for the women running in that party sometimes. And then uh, the, again, folks who will support them, right? Are there going to be greater questions about women and leadership among Republican voters donors, party leaders, et cetera, that can certainly create some conflict. Oftentimes women, Republican women can navigate that effectively in messaging and making a case, but you've got to think that that also stymies some of the, the candidate emergence and support and encouragement and all of that. And then finally, I think that there, this is obvious, there is a less robust support infrastructure for Republican women. Um, the clearest example is financially. So on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, Emily's List, which is the political action committee that was created to support financially pro-choice Democratic women. It's been around for three decades and has really changed the game for Democratic women because money matters so much in US politics that what they effectively did was to say to parties, if you choose a woman, if you back a woman candidate, party, you know, Democratic leaders, we will infuse, now we're talking millions of dollars into that campaign. If it's not a woman nominee, that money goes away, Democratic Party, right? We're, we're, we're only backing the women. This doesn't transfer to the guy you chose instead because you said gender shouldn't matter and we're choosing the best candidate. Um, and so that is a, a clear incentive to the parties to support more women. And we've seen state level versions of that. There's also tr more training programs, more candidate emergence support, et cetera, more diversity and partisan leadership. So therefore among the gatekeepers, all of that on the democratic side, the Republican side has largely been averse to those sorts of targeted recruitment, training and financing programs. And that speaks to the cultural, another cultural issue, which is the Republican leadership often says, we don't play identity politics. Identity politics are bad. Identity politics are dangerous. Now, we, we know the Republican Party 100% plays identity, identity politics, right? Uh, Donald Trump is the clearest case. But they, the aversion to a targeted recruitment and support program and targeted efforts on the basis of gender and or race 
um, makes it that much harder for them to actually see significant gains in women's representation, both as candidates and office holders. Okay, so what's the path forward? Progress has been slow. As an expert in the field, what's the solution? Is there even a a lever to mandate the structural changes? That's the challenge we have in the United States. It's impossible. In other words, we can't prevent or we can't close down candidacy based on the number of women who come forward and file or the number of men and say, sorry, men, no more men can file for office. It's just not how that works, right? We don't have a party-based system. And so our solutions, and I think solutions in systems like First Past the Post are to basically create more robust support that is external um, in many cases to the parties, right? Because we can't trust the parties to be the ones to push forward. So that means Emily's list. It means funding outside of the system. It means creating additional candidate emergence and candidate recruitment and candidate support programs. It means strategic recruitment. And what I mean by that is recruiting in places and at times when you know these are actually winnable races. So... Um, when somebody's retiring, particularly when women are leaving office, that they're supporting women behind them uh, and or these organizations are making sure that there's a woman ready and sort of prepared and supported to, to run. The different story within the Democratic and Republican parties, and indeed movements, is an important part of understanding gender and politics in the U.S., This is Dr. Nadia Brown, a professor of government and chair of the Women and Gender Studies program at Georgetown University. I asked Dr. Brown what she sees as driving progress. Is it within parties or the appetite of the public or something else? So there are two different things um, that you mentioned that I want to kind of bifurcate and pull apart. So what's, I think, driving progress on the Democratic front is that Democrats recognize that people of color and women, women of color are what will sustain the party. And this is, these are patterns that have been seen since the 1980s, but are now fully crystallized. Um, When then candidate Biden said that he would name a woman VP, that was a strategic decision, right? Like this wasn't, I think, out of the benevolence of his heart, um, because we don't know his heart. I'm not trying to make claims whether it's one way or the other, but I'm just saying it's strategic, right? We know he's a politician, it's pragmatic. Women make up the majority of voters. And we know that in a in the summer of racial reckoning around um, anti-Asian violence, it was very, very smart because of COVID and the kind of dog whistles of xenophobia and um, anti-Asian rhetoric that the Republicans were suing. It was strategic to pick a Black and South Indian woman, right, who could then reach out to these constituencies that were so key for the Democrats. So again, not, you know, not saying Biden was um, personally driven to do these things, but I think the party recognized that they could not um, just have a old white man represent a group of people who were much more diverse. And so um, I think driving progress for the Democrats was really a taking good stock of their previous losses. So looking back to um, the um, Hillary Clinton's campaign 
And there was really a missed opportunity, many felt, by not naming um, one of the Castro brothers uh, or you know, a Latinx person to be VP. But instead, they choose a white man who also speaks Spanish. <laughs> right? So like learning from, from those losses would say more diversity is better because that's where your base is going. And we saw the turnout in um, like the Women's March in 2017 was the largest single day protest in United States history. The Democrats and Republicans would be foolish not to pay attention to women's votes. Conversely, on the other side, right, Republicans also know this, right? And you saw that in the RNC, the, 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 the convention this summer, they really pulled on women, right, to in ways um, be the face of the party, be messengers of the party, really try to soften the, re- the rhetoric that President Trump was, was putting out there. Um, but un- unlike the Democrats, Republicans don't have an infrastructure for building up women. Um, the Democrats have a party structure where women are mentored. They are um, uh, looked out to see, like, uh, will this be a rising star? Is this someone that we should cultivate? Should we give them resources? Now, all of this is still problematic. I'm not to say that the, that this structure is good for people. My own research says it's really not good for women of color who are oftentimes overlooked. But at least there is a structure. Um, and once you get in it, you're in it. It's just hard to get in if you are a woman of color. But the Republicans have no structure, right? They're like, the cream rises to the top. If you're a good candidate, and you'll seek us out, and you'll win. And you just need the same things that any other candidate needs. There's no difference in gender. And that's why you see this paltry numbers of, of women on the Republican side. It's because there's nothing that is intentionally done to cultivate relationships and mentorship, mentorship programs of people of color, of, of women, people that are queer, differently abled, because Republicans think that we're all individuals and that our group identities don't shape our lived experiences that we bring to politics. So what's driving the progress in some ways are just the fortitude of individual people who are going to say, I'm, I'm running and I'm doing this. And then on the other side, there is progress being made because it is voters that are really shifting and making the parties be much more responsive. I talked with Dr. Brown about this season of No Second Chances, where Canadians are trying to learn from other countries and what she felt Canadians could learn from the American experience. And I'll admit that I was a bit taken aback by her answer. And I don't think necessarily America is the the place to watch either. I mean, I think the difference is where the Canadians, you all have a deep um, commitment to progressiveness or want to see yourself as much more progressive. And perhaps that disconnect will... um, lead you to a point that you're at least able to have these conversations among people without um, nasty, negative, vitriol responses. In the United States, I don't think we see ourselves as progressives, right? So if more, so there's certain, there's a half of a population who is championing women's um, elections and diversity in elected office. And then another half who just don't give a damn, right? They're like, doesn't matter. American is American. Um, you know, you should not see yourself as a woman or a black person, as a queer person, as a disabled person. You should just see yourself as an American. And I think the difference in how both of our countries see ourselves and what we value most should be used to drive the conversation um, on who you want to be. And I think Canada has a leg up because I think the Canadians generally see themselves as progressive people 
and will think creatively to be problem solving so that they can fit into their ideals, right? And um, we don't. So, I mean, I feel like we have American exceptionalism that really tries to wipe away any kind of differences among us. Um, but calling out attention to these differences are what make us better because we're able to learn, we're able to, um, you know, kind of figure out ha- ways to go forward that betters all of us as opposed to some. But for Canadians, I think that learning from other other nations, not the U.S., is probably the, the way to go, right? So I think about, um, you know, my I'm I'm an American politics scholar, but I think about the research from my my colleagues in comparative politics, particularly those that study women in state legislatures or um, national legislatures in South America, in in Europe, or in places in Africa where there are gender quotas. Um, now, we know that they're problematic, right? And so there's backlash um, with quotas and that um, some of these women are figureheads only and they don't actually have real, um, real authority to make change. But within these systems, I think it changes who people believe could be rightful leaders. And sometimes symbolic representation is an important stepping stone to get us to descriptive representation. And so thinking about countries that are willing to put themselves or to hold up this progressive manner, maybe it is learning from places that have quotas and, and seeing what, um, and, and working to instill some of these quotas, but um, taking the scholarship to learn how to actually implement them in ways that take women out of figurehead positions. Um, women, minorities, indigenous groups, right? Queer folks, differently abled folks out of these figurehead positions and actually incorporating their voices and perspectives in politics. So, I mean, I'm hard, I'm heartful that um, Canada might be able to do this. I, I, unfortunately, I think the ship has sailed for the U.S. Hmm. Well then, Dr. Brown wasn't alone in this view. Meet Dr. Milaga Ock, a political scientist and gender and politics expert from Idaho State University. So I think from the outside or by just looking at a media narrative, it really looks like there is progress in the U.S. and there is. We've seen increased number of women um, being elected to Congress. However, if we put it in the big picture, the progress is very little. So, for example, when we think about the year of the women in 2018, it was like the record women in Congress, um, record women of color in Congress. And that's all true. However, it really just moved the needle from 20% women in Congress to 23.6% in Congress. And then even in 2020, where we see another push of women getting into Congress, another increase in um, in numbers, we are only at 26.9%. So even though it is big numbers for the U.S., when we look at it from a global perspective, the U.S. is still lagging behind dozens of countries, including places like Rwanda or Bolivia, tons of um, countries in Latin America that have done very well in um, increasing the number of women in politics. So I think it's it's a different type of measurement. Um, So yes, for the US, we've seen progress. Is it enough? Absolutely not. How does it compare to the world? Not great. Just as Dr. Dittmar and Dr. Brown suggested, Part of the reason has been a real resistance to formal interventions that benefit underrepresented groups, including women. So instead, 
progress has had to come from elsewhere. And if you look around the world, the most successful and impactful and important tool to increase the number of women in politics are electoral gender quotas. And there are different flavors of electoral gender quotas, right? So Rwanda has 30% of seats reserved in parliament for women. Now they are at 60 plus percent women in parliament. Then you have um, other countries like Spain or very commonly, I think also in Latin America, where you have legislative gender quotas where a certain number of candidates, so lists on electoral, um, electoral lists, And then you have places like Scandinavia that have been really successful through voluntary party quotas where parties commit themselves to nominate a certain number of women for each election. And I think understanding how the electoral system works in Canada and what kind of gender quota makes the most sense is the first step. Of course, this is also, is is it politically, socially, culturally acceptable to have quotas? Um, Germany is a case that is very hesitant to adopt quotas, especially on the right side of the spectrum, the conservative parties. However, even the Christian Democratic Party in Germany has now, the women in there have now really pushed for a legislative electoral gender quota, which would be pathbreaking in Germany. So I think a lot of the things that help countries to to have more women in politics are things that you cannot emulate, for example, historical legacy like early women's suffrage and already other affirmative action policies, whether it is equitable parental leave, um, corporate board quotas and all these other things often um, denote a culture that is in general more open to affirmative action and quota solutions um, because they recognize that even with the best of intention and the same opportunities, there are in enough systemic barriers in place in, in, in institutional structures that prevent women from actually getting equality of results. But I think that's a really difficult conversation to have, especially on a countrywide scale. Um, What we've seen in the U.S., for example, is that the U.S. clearly not a place that is open to electoral gender quotas, but um, the pipeline matters a lot in the U.S. So a majority of women elected to Congress have served in another capacity before on the state level. And the Democrats have been really, really great at building this farm team, like building women up from the lowest municipal level all the way up to Congress because you need to have um, women to tap into if there are open positions, if there's an open seat coming up or um, someone is getting appointed to a different position and there's suddenly a senator seat open. So you need to have those women available um, and ready to go and hit the ground running. And I think the pipeline is maybe a good investment in countries that it's always a good investment, but a particularly good investment in countries that might not be as open to um, legal solutions. This episode really got me thinking. If I am hearing these articulate American politics scholars, they are not optimistic about the U.S. achieving gender parity anytime soon, well aware of the enormous institutional and cultural barriers in the way. And this is something we'll talk about more later in this season, why some places have been open while others are closed to more direct interventions like quotas or parity laws. In the U.S., where progress has been made, 
It's been driven within political movements, but in different ways and for different reasons. Building and supporting a strong pipeline of female-identified and diverse candidates emerges as an important strategy. It is an investment that pays dividends. And unparalleled interventions like Emily's List, which has raised a whopping 700 million U.S. dollars to fund democratic pro-choice women's campaigns, has gotten more women elected. Let's return to the question we started with. What is the relationship between Canadians and American political culture? Of course, American politics and political movements are enormously influential in Canada. But is this hardening us against taking the steps that would be needed in Canada and elsewhere to achieving gender parity? So far this season, we've been from Denmark to Taiwan to Chile to New Zealand and now in the USA. And we have heard about interventions that work from electoral systems to different kinds of quotas to broader gender equity projects. And today I think we heard some wise and important cautions about political institutions and culture that can make us resistant to these interventions. Canada, I am looking at you. What will our story be? How long are we willing to accept that huge groups of our population remain largely underrepresented in our top political roles? How long are we willing to wait before we see a black female premier or more indigenous women in federal and provincial cabinets or even just the basics like seeing women in top roles have the same electoral fortunes as men, including sometimes second chances? In Canada, more importantly, what are we prepared to do about it? For now, let's keep thinking and exploring and learning. That is what this series is all about. And you won't want to miss the next stop on our tour. We're heading to Namibia, where we'll learn a few things and I think find some inspiration. I'll see you there. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. The music is by Meredith Yeyenos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. The No Second Chances podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard. <laughs>